North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. How many of you, uh, two, two years ago, uh, had heard of Adam Kuntz in such a way that you knew he was this articulate, confessional Lutheran? Two years ago, anybody in here know of him and think, this is a guy I want to go listen to? Two of you. Right, three of you? So he really is, he's a bit of a, he's a, bit of a wonderkind and a phenomenon. Uh, and now, of course, you all know about him because he does about seven or eight podcasts a week, apparently. And, uh, I don't know what else he does. Teaches at the seminary a little bit, but uh, I don't know when he's there. And he's raising, he's raising a few children as well. 
He's, uh, we're really thrilled to uh, have him have signed on as a, a, a Goddess Games blogger and editor. He's uh, only done one post uh, so far, but he, he knocked it right out of the park. I hope you all read it. Uh, it was. I hope you. I hope you also read the essay it was about. Just so you know how. Just so you know that you should send everybody to Fort Wayne at this point. Uh, but anyway, uh, we're really we really are blessed to have him and, and, and thrilled to have him as part of Goddess Deans and, and very glad that he was willing to speak to us today. So Adam, thank you. Welcome. So what we're going to be dealing with today, uh, I'm not going to go into specifics. I'm going to kind of relate together the first, roughly the four centuries of the church's existence because legally it resembles our own, which I'll explain. If you're interested in specifics, specific stories, some of which I'll reference but which I won't read or kind of drag you through textually, you want to pick up this book called Greek and Latin Narratives about the ancient martyrs. <clears throat> you might have uh, a used copy of something like this that was last printed in the 70s. This is about as good and comprehensive as it gets today. So this is about 40 bucks. Um, it's got Greek or Latin on the left-hand page, English on, or, yeah, English on the right-hand page. So uh, what we're talking about today, if you're interested, this is the place to go. I would go to the primary sources, uh, particularly for this reason, which will get us into our first lecture where we're largely going to be talking about the persecutors, not the persecuted. We'll talk about the persecuted, uh, it looks like, after lunch, the church. But the persecutors we're interested in because we want to understand their motivations, maybe the larger reality of persecution within the early church, what was it. And in order to do that, I want to look at their words, not at probably some church historian's later summation of what happened, maybe in the 19th or writing in the 20th century, because it's so distant intellectually. Uh, your most trustworthy people on these kinds of matters I've found for understanding the persecutors are people who are just writing about the Romans, who would be therefore maybe classics people, but not church historians. The reason being, in order to understand it from the inside out, to understand what pushed the persecutors to do the things that they did at all levels, intermittently, sometimes violently, sometimes not, you want to understand their own motivations and their own sense of what was happening. So when we say persecution, let's be clear about what we're talking about today because I think misconceptions about what persecution is or has to be may be derived from certain kind of sword and sandal Hollywood movies, makes the church not be able to read the signs of the times, cannot grasp what is happening to it, because when they hear the word persecution read, say, on All Saints Sunday, they're hearing someone being bled to death by you know, attacks by a lion inside an arena. And if that's not happening, and there was not some sort of obvious confrontation that involved the confession of Christian doctrine specifically, then we're not dealing with persecution. And since none of that has, so far as I know, happened to any of us, we're not dealing with persecution. 
Now, there's a lot in that picture, I think largely derived based on my grasp of what people actually look at, not so much read but look at, which is that a lot of their sense of history, not just American history, but even ancient history, is shaped by movies. And so, if that is the case, then their sense of the Romans is whatever the movies told them, and their sense derived largely from when Hollywood was still interested in things like this, which is, you know, the 60s, maybe roughly where they're still making kind of Bible movies that, that come out. Um, maybe Gladiator would be some kind of update to that. But the sense there is that the Romans do not themselves particularly have religious motivations. But their motivation for persecuting the Christians is also not particularly explained. It's just kind of a, it's just kind of a given. And it's a given, and I think this goes also for Christians, whether they know the movies or not. It's a given about the past. It's just something in the past. Like when people visit Amish areas and they see people driving around in buggies and they think that those people are kind of historical reenactors, but just 24-7. They haven't made a particular choice in their community about how to stick together. They're just kind of historic. They're just old-timey. <laughs> yeah. And martyrdom, therefore, is old-timey. It's in the past. And it's firmly there. And when it's not firmly there, maybe if you get mailings from, you know, Voice of the Martyrs, if it's not in the past, it is elsewhere. And it's that, and I think this is all entirely implicit, implicit sense that it's elsewhere or back there means that if it's not here in the ways that I saw it in movies or in the ways that I, you know, read a Richard Wormbrand book maybe once about a communist regime, then it's obviously not happening to me here. So there are lots of circumstances that I am able to look at and say, my church was supposed to be closed by order of the government, but that's not persecution. Because I was not arrested, nor was I dragged anywhere, nor did anyone in my church die. So it's not persecution because it doesn't line up with Hollywood, and it didn't happen as such in a communist regime in the 1970s anywhere. And what I would like to do today, if anything, is to give you a sense of looking at things based on your matching of observation of what has actually occurred, matching that with the Bible, and kind of setting Hollywood and other impressions or historical hunches aside. Because when you do that, you begin to practice something that I think is the value that church history has. Church history is not valuable merely as a piece of antiquarianism. And some of us have antiquarian instincts. I certainly do. And so I'm just interested in something because it's old. That's not why you should study church history. You want to study church history because it happened to the body of Christ, and you, many centuries later, and probably on a different continent, were baptized into that body, but it happened to the body of which you are a member. 
And I know that that sense can be nearer or farther, right? So your sense of at your parish who your predecessors were or who the pastors were if you're not a pastor is much nearer in your sense of belonging to the body of Christ than your sense of what happened to someone who was a Disciples of Christ pastor in 1892. Okay. But the value of church history is that it happened to one body and the body endures. And Jesus thinks about what happens to the body so intensively that when he confronts Saul on the road to Damascus, he says, why are you persecuting me? Because of his identification with what is occurring to his people. So when we think about, especially under legal circumstances, things relatively similar, circumstances relatively similar, difficulties relatively similar to our own in the time before Christianity was legalized and then later established in the Roman Empire, then the profit that we can gain from that is not merely antiquarian, like, oh, I know that this happened in Asia Minor and this happened in North Africa and this happened in Spain. The profit that we can gain from it is being able, therefore, by vicarious experience, to have a maturer, wiser mind to discern what is occurring in our own midst. And that's the point. The rest of it is just sheer antiquarian interest, right? Which is totally fine, and I'm happy to do that for you if you want to, but I can't say I'm personally that interested in it, okay? So... What, how, how do we want to think about persecution? Let's just start with a little bit of um, biblical, let's say, setup. And I'll only go for an hour. It looks like we started early because the guy that introduced me was not as verbose as some people that introduced me, which, which we, we thank him for and we appreciate. And because I can't tell you how many times I've heard when I graduated from college. I mean, if I ever forget, now I can't, right? So I appreciate that. So I'm going to go until about 11.40, um, and we'll have time for questions or whatever. That's fine. Persecution is not biblically martyrdom. It is not identical to it. If you want to think about it conceptually, persecution is a spectrum. Martyrdom is somewhere on that spectrum. So you know as well as I do that all the words related to the English noun martyr have to do with simply being a witness, full stop, okay? That comes to be limited through the church's experience of persecution to those who have been persecuted and died for the name of Christ. There are other categories in the ancient church of which many of us are now unaware. For example, Probably the one that receives the greatest honor, besides the martyrs, are confessors. Confessors are tortured, maybe even sentenced to death, but do not die, and then are released. Those would be confessors. So they are often known by being visibly maimed through what they suffered. Confessors. In addition to that, there is, at least in the North African church, a formal category, and this is really the heart of something we'll talk about in the second hour today. There are traitors, that's literally the word, traditores, those who hand things over. So your actions during a time of persecution have attendant categorical nouns. Think about that. We don't even really have attendant categorical nouns for 
things that are normal realities in our churches. So we don't have a different noun if you're a pastor that has 30 people on a Sunday for if you're a pastor that has 3,000 people on a Sunday. We don't have different nouns for these things. And that's fine. But when the church has an experience and gives nouns to specific things, you can tell that that is the most salient fact for them, right? What is not given any specific noun is the idea that you go through persecution as the body of Christ. Nor do they generally talk about persecution with its biblical you know, breadth to that term as something unusual. They will usually use the noun persecution as in on flight in persecution, which is one of Cyprian's treatises on flight in persecution. They'll usually use that noun for a period of special intensity. But I think it is important to realize that the biblical explanation of it is a little wider than the way that it gets used in the church's experience and certainly is used by us. Think about the way that Jesus, when he talks about blessed are those at the end of the Beatitudes, the blessing pronounced on the persecuted. The explanation of persecuted there in 5, 11, and 12 involves not only being hunted down, right? That's, I think, the middle verb in the, a series of three. The two on, the, on the either side of dioko, dioxosin, uh, on either side are really have to do with words. When they speak evil of you and say all manner of evil falsely for my sake or on my account or for the sake of righteousness, maybe specifically in 11. And what's going on there is that he is understanding, our Lord understands persecution as natural or native to the gospel's course in this world. So it's not something, and this is very much unlike, especially prior to 2020, I saw the church talking about persecution. Persecution should not be talked about, I think, as if we're all scared of something coming. Because the Lord talks about it calmly, the same way he talks about mourning or making peace or the practice of meekness, same word as he uses to describe himself uh, in the text that we heard for the sermon this morning, praus. So when he talks about persecution, he sees it as native to his way in this world and thus of his people's way in this world that they will be, of course, persecuted. So it's not something, and I don't know, I mean, I don't want to pick on Voice of the Martyrs, but the tone and kind of even the, the color scheme chosen for books about or magazines about persecution is often kind of blood red, black, scary kind of shades of brown. And the reason for that, I think, is because we think of it as something unusual. And that's because I do not think that we have conceptually for ourselves occupied the same range of ideas for persecution that Jesus himself presumes, like many other things, does not explain, but presumes by how he talks about the reality. So when he's talking about persecutions, he simply presumes that it will occur, and like the practice of the other virtues and the Beatitudes, but also their origin in the blessing that he pronounces on his people, these are just things that happen I don't have to look for them. They happen, and I don't need to be alarmed by them because they simply will happen 
in the same way that we understand very naturally that those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness will not be fulfilled by this present age. That's natural. I don't have to talk about it in dire, terrifying terms to you. We get it. So that same breadth in the understanding of persecution, it could be that we do think of it, we just don't use the word. The significance of that is not just some kind of little, you know, lexical point. It's that if we use some other word or set of words for what, how Jesus talks about persecution, that means that we are conceiving of our lives in a way, not entirely the way that our Lord is conceiving of his life in us, his body. So maybe we say church-state friction, or maybe we say secularization, or maybe we say that, you know, this is just the way it is when, you know, you have to go to work and deal with the people that you deal with at work, with kind of the rules that human resources has, but we don't think of it as persecution, and I think that one of the applications there is that therefore we do not also understand the blessing that can come from remaining in the body that Jesus pronounces on the body that is being persecuted. So when we do not align our own thinking with the way that the Holy Spirit has taught us to think, it's not just that we're missing out on you know, little lexical insights from the original languages. It's that we're missing out in our own thinking in English inside our own heads on what it is that the Holy Spirit intends us to apply and to be applied to us that would bring us a different sense of life than we otherwise have. Because the sense of life that I see us having is largely alarmed or kind of an ostrich reaction of thinking, and I understand this reaction, wanting it to pass or thinking that it will pass. And that may or may not be true about emergency situations. It is certainly true about viral waves, strictly speaking, <laughs> just speaking in terms of biology, okay? But you know as well as I do that none of this is actually about biology, okay? So that when we are thinking about, okay, will this go away or how will it go away or is this just a result of some sort of inexorable historical process like secularization, whatever that specifically means, those abstractions keep us away from the way that Jesus both verbally wants us to think about the things that we see, and therefore also from the kinds of evaluations of life, especially of the church's life, that he teaches at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So I don't really think it's an accident that he begins the Sermon on the Mount with a, an expansive vision. Blessed are all these people whom the world does not account as blessed. He ends with a parable concerning building your house on this rock. But just before that, he teaches you how to judge teaching because he understands a unity between teaching and life that we often do not think of. We think of teaching as kind of lexical maintenance. Did he say the words that he's supposed to say, right? And you know as well as I do that the various subgroups within Christianity, church bodies, as well as inside our church body, we all have words, and that's fine. That is indeed how humans recognize each other. That's what Shibboleth Sibboleth is about. That's okay. That's fine. When so, if I'm in a foreign country and someone starts speaking 
unaccented American English, I would be happy because that's someone from home. I get it. That's a human reality. Nonetheless, if you stop on a lexical level when you're evaluating what's happening, you are far more naive than Jesus is teaching you to be. Because the wisdom that he speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount is specifically phronesis, phronesis, which is not Sophia. Sophia, that's the woman who invites at the beginning of Proverbs in the Septuagint. Sophia is, and it's, this is necessary, Sophia is theoretical wisdom. And I think theoretical wisdom is something in which our church body is generally extremely strong. We will even maintain theoretical forms of doctrine even when we don't believe them. That's, that's what we did in the 50s and 60s, okay? Okay, so we're, we're fairly strong in that. I, so I don't, for instance, expect someone to come out, either a parish pastor or a district official or a seminary professor, to come out in the Missouri Synod and say, no, the body and blood of Jesus Christ doesn't matter that much. Of course he would never say that. But what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is phronesis, which is a different concept. And we, it gets translated, and it, it's in Aristotle, for example. It gets translated as practical wisdom because we, we don't really have our own noun for it. The noun shrewdness conveys something in English that is a little morally suspect that phronesis doesn't carry with it. It's not morally suspect to know not only what you should say or think, but especially what you should do. And the doing is the test of the teacher, right? By their fruits shall you know them does not mean some sort of moral perfectionism. It means an observation of life by which you can generally figure out what the person actually does teach and therefore what the outcome of that teaching is. Because the contrast drawn throughout the Sermon on the Mount is not between uh, Jesus' disciples who are never supposed to ask for forgiveness because they're morally perfect. Obviously, the Lord's <laughs> Prayer teaches you you will not be and are not in this life morally perfect in every way. But you are not hypocrites because you do not pretend to be something which, if I actually observe what you do and not what you say, you indeed are not. Hypocrites are, the Pharisees are, false teachers are, pretenders. That is why they are so good at maintaining lexical doctrinal forms, even when their actions contravene those forms. Okay. If I, therefore, am not able to inculcate wisdom in the way that Jesus teaches me to do, then I will not be able to understand what is happening, not just in the past, but especially in the present because I will, I will observe the forms being maintained, especially the doctrinal theoretical forms, and I cannot make any judgments on the basis of what has actually occurred, okay. which I need to do. That's indeed what Jesus is teaching me to do. So in the case of persecution, if you take that breadth and you map it onto modern America, what you see is that it already has been and indeed is occurring. And I'm not saying that in order to scare you. I'm just saying that so that you know what is happening. It's already there. It didn't have to be there in the form of a government mandate. 
Some of it we have been participating in for a long time, especially anything relating to money and flows of money, either public or private, that enable us to do things we weren't able to do before those flows were turned on, especially after the Second World War in American life. So if those flows are turned on and we are dependent on those flows of money, then of course we are not going to be able to see that log in our eye because we, we can just talk about the specks in the eyes of the Baptists or something. Things easy to discuss. What's wrong with the Baptists? Okay. But the Southern Baptist Convention, the thing that you should be interested in with them is how they have reacted rather differently than we have not so much to COVID as to George Floyd stuff, because they have obviously their whole, their entire history with race is more fraught than our own. So that's something to look up. What I want you to kind of, let's go back to the ancient world in this way. What I want you to see is that persecution is occurring to Jesus and thereafter to his church, narrated in the book of Acts, expansively and not simply limited to the exertions of Saul to bring Christians, both men and women, that's a certain index of his heinousness, men and women bound back to Jerusalem from Damascus. Persecution is the nature of opposition to Christ and his gospel in this world, and therefore to his body in this world. It really is that simple. Therefore, it can exist even when and where you have supposedly a Christianized society. And Luther's writings, especially where he is forced to recognize the difference between church and state, such as on temporal authority in 1523, those are the places where you will find Luther saying things that sound startling like a modern American, such as, there are very few actual Christians <laughs> in a society entirely baptized, state-funded, state-supported, thoroughly Constantinian, there are very few actual Christians. The early church doesn't have that same confusion. What they do have until the Edict of Milan in the very early 4th century is a state of being dubiously legal and then obviously and indubitably illegal. There is a change that you can track from Christians being confused with Jews to being eventually marked and persecuted not only on a local level, but empire-wide by the time of Diocletian. Okay, so that's, that's end of the third century. That change is a result of growth. So understand this, that persecution increases, very big picture, persecution increases as a result of the success of God's word in the world. If more are turned to him, then persecution becomes necessarily more targeted. When you start out, what you can see in Acts, especially early on, is that persecution results from strife within a community that actually knows quite well what the difference is. That is, the Sanhedrin, which is simply the city government. That's, that's what that is. The Sanhedrin, which is ethnic and religious in the Roman Empire. The city government and other Jews, especially in synagogues, both inside and outside Jerusalem, they actually grasp the theological distinctions that the Christians are making. Not all at the same level. For example, when Paul is on trial before the Pharisees and Sadducees, Paul can turn the Pharisees against the Sadducees because the Pharisees themselves in that particular formation 
are not totally knowledgeable of him and therefore not hardened against him. But where and when the message of the gospel is specifically clear to a people that can tell the difference, know the Bible, have an opinion about these things, opposition is very strong. Okay. Uh, that is the fate of Stephen. Conversely with Stephen is James, who's martyred in chapter 12. James, his death appears to me to be more obviously politically motivated, a kind of a matter of appeasement, somewhat like the death of John the Baptist. That is appeasement of interest groups within the polity, not necessarily theologically specific. So know this, that even when persecution kind of sharpens into martyrdom, the martyrdom itself does not, even in the book of Acts, have to be theologically extensive or clear. It can be incidental to belonging to the group of the Christians, or in that case, especially leading a group of Christians. And that is something that will occur throughout the time of Christianity's struggle, pub public open struggle, intensifying uh, the closer we get actually to legalization, is that the theological specificity of the challenge to Christianity varies very widely. So in the martyrdom accounts, uh, sometimes there will be an account of interrogation that was very likely a public record kept by the Romans themselves because it was a judicial proceeding. Okay? And that public record may simply be, do you, do you uh, accept that you need to sacrifice to the emperor? No. And then uh, something that we'll talk about in the second hour, the slogan, I am a Christian, Christianus sum, used by everyone. Everyone says that. I am a Christian. Or my name, that also means Christian is my name. Um, that idea will occur over and over again, and sometimes the person is sentenced to death immediately after that. There are other times when, much like Stephen, effectively entire sermons are preached inside the martyrdom accounts, often to the officials. Okay? So sometimes the magistrate's knowledge of Christian doctrine is very extensive when he actually has the person killed. Sometimes it may not be. Perhaps there were conversations preceding that. I want this to be clear because I think the idea that in order for persecution to occur uh, or for it to be something that we need to think about corporately, there has to be, um, in the Lutheran formulation, an attack on the gospel that uh, is much like the difficulty that we had in the 1970s where if the, form, if the lexical form of the gospel is maintained, everything's fine, right? So since no one said, well, when you do Zoom church, you can't say that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose for your justification, they didn't forbid that, so we're not being persecuted because the gospel, strictly speaking, may still be shared. And that, I think, is very naive about how even within Acts, let alone in church history, Persecution is generally doctrinally indifferent. There may be some specific understood by the Christians as doctrinal occasion for confession. 
the one with which you are probably most familiar is the one that becomes increasingly important the longer that persecution goes on and the more Christians there are, especially in the eastern part of the empire. And that is the requirement to participate in the imperial cult. If you're not familiar with that, that is the idea probably originating among Greeks. This is real, it's not really a Roman practice to sacrifice to a living man. But the Romans, I think, politically wisely exploit this and eventually require sacrifice to an image of the emperor. This is probably a statue, an image of the emperor, uh, which involves offering incense in front of the image indicating worship. Okay. So this will pick up as a formal practice the longer that this goes on. But there are other occasions, um, such as announcement that you belong to the group of the Christians. So for example, uh, a letter which, if you went to seminary and even if you don't, you're probably familiar, is that in the year 112, Pliny the Younger writes a letter to the emperor Trajan, and he tells him about what he's doing. So I, I do want to kind of go over the contents of that letter for our benefit because I think it captures the stance of a government official relative to Christians. One is his, mostly his ignorance. He's not even exactly sure what they are, okay? Because Christians are not, an, they are not a specific ethnos. Uh, we might say that as ethnicity, they would say nazio or nation in Latin. And that, that involves the insight that really is not contravened by you know, scripture, that people belong to certain groups by birth, okay? But the Christians do not require membership by virtue of belonging to one of those certain groups, okay? So the Jews get a pass from things like imperial sacrifice because they have a group with customs that are ancient, okay? Um, you, so you can get out of these sorts of requirements. Also, they're exempt from any kind of military service as a nation unless they want to voluntarily. The Christians are not ethnically specific as a group, so it's not even entirely clear what he's supposed to be looking at. Think about this. You, you do have to think about the Romans bureaucratically, okay? Because they are probably the best at bureaucracy of any ancient people. I mean, they they kept judicial proceedings that the church then acquired and then incorporated into martyrdom accounts. If you look at this bureaucratically, you have a group of people and they're coming together and, and Pliny says, they are accused of two things, cannibalism and incest. Um, those are the charges throughout the time of persecution. Cannibalism because of what they say about the Lord's Supper incest because they greet one another with a holy kiss and call each other brother and sister. So that is metastasized. What they do inside the church, which may or may not be known to the surrounding people who are interested in their destruction, whatever it is that they are aware of from the outside, that metastasizes like a cancer into their cannibals and they commit incest. So that's what he's heard. He doesn't understand why that may be. He has no grasp of the doctrine of the Lord's Supper or their understanding of the church as a family, therefore using familial terms. None of that makes sense to him, and he's not really interested in explaining it. But in order to investigate those things, he has people brought in, both men and women, and they are tortured. 
he can't find that they've done any of those things. Therefore, he has largely released them. Okay. And he, he's asking Trajan, essentially, how do I proceed? Because if they are guilty of these crimes, okay, and you can imagine that the nature of crime here really has very little to do with commission of specific acts, which if you avoid them, you will be left alone. Crime has to do with being unpopular and then being denounced. Okay, so if you begin to think about it in the same expansive way that Jesus teaches persecution, it makes more sense why it's happening the way that it does. Or when Paul is in physical danger and acts, how does that happen? This doesn't have to do with Paul not being sufficiently careful to comply with government regulation. This has to do with surrounding people groups in a city, uh, maybe on a larger scale, eventually on an imperial scale, different groups of people not liking something or many somethings about the Christians, and then essentially committing slander. That, that, that's really what, that is how you should think about the nature of crime, okay? You have to become, we might call this cynical, but from a historical perspective, it simply is much more often the case than that Christians were guilty of cannibalism or incest or anything else that they were accused of. So if you start thinking about crime as just sort of the way that certain human ecosystems interact rather than, okay, I'm law-abiding, the only thing I've ever gotten is a traffic ticket, therefore I shouldn't expect or even think that persecution would ever occur to me. Is this like a Mormon Yeah, and the idea that, and I, I think that a lot of this is based on, um, whether it's Hollywood or not, the idea of historical exception, that we live either in a country that politically or in a time theologically in which these things could never occur, or human beings would not lie about one another in ways that would endanger each other's lives. Um, the idea that that only happens in communist countries or that only happened in the past, I think is one of the worst possible ideas that you could have because it would mean that the place and time that we live in has somehow produced human beings not affected by original sin in the same way that other human beings and other times obviously have been in historically observable and therefore predictable ways. Yeah, so. Is it scapegoating? Um, yeah. In other words, were there things going on at that time that... So in the case of, uh, that's Bithynia, so it's like northern, northern Turkey today, we don't think there, there were. Like, so the only, the only social circumstance that Pliny can report to Trajan is the temples are much emptier than they used to be. Um, there's no occasion of, of mass violence for which the Christians are blamed similar to how when Tacitus is talking about the fire of Rome, he says, Nero blamed this on the Christians, right? Nero blamed this fire on the Christians. That is scapegoating and that can occur, right? And that is certainly how, for instance, the churches that are like, were forcibly closed in Canada, they were scapegoated in terms of that here's this mass biological threat to all of us. They don't care about it see how they hate us, right? They're despisers of mankind. So that can occur, but it doesn't have to. There doesn't have to be an occasion. There can simply be dislike or distrust, which is 
more often the case earlier because the Christians are not a large coherent group. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions or thoughts so far? Okay. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, how come we don't, like, the first time I was introduced to this idea of, like, okay, maybe all the people at church saw a movie and that ruined my delivery of this message mm -hmm. that was with Jesus Christ Superstar Okay. when I first realized that. And I don't understand why um, congregants don't say, see a movie like you're saying, and then desire to have that be like a story that they're being drawn into. So like, okay, they're getting persecuted in the Colosseum or whatever by yeah. tigers. Why don't they put themselves into that situation as opposed to saying, that happened in the past and I don't yeah. care anymore. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they may, you know, because there's a certain, because there are, there are a range of reactions to these things and there are people who overreact, okay. right? Um, and that, that is what I mean, that is what I mean at least by alarmism. That is, you react in a way which is so wild-eyed and my concern there is not so much that that person is wrong necessarily as that he makes the things that, like I'm saying, for example, today, uh, unbelievable to people that don't have the same psychological makeup. Okay, so uh, one of the things that we'll talk about in the, in the, when we talk about the persecuted uh, is the notion of solidarity. So if someone is saying something with which I don't entirely agree, like his assessment, um, let's say it's alarmist, he, I think he basically has the right instincts so I'm not going to speak against him publicly, but I, I privately I would say, you know, when you talk that way, you make us sound crazy, and therefore no one is, everyone's just going to dismiss persecution because it's just sort of the hobby horse that you ride. Um, because if you put yourself in that position, then your persecutors will be savvy enough to deny you the satisfaction of things like that. Right. So the example that actually occurs in the empire is eventually the, the Romans realize that when a Christian dies, the church will collect his remains and bury him reverently, often inside if they have a, a, a church. That's how you end up getting in most churches regulations about requiring the bones of a martyr specifically to be under an altar, which I believe in the East is still the case. I think in the West... I think the Roman Catholics just need a saint. Um, but in the East, it was, at least historically, often a martyr specifically. When the Romans realize how much that means to the Christians, they begin doing things like burning them in order to deny them the satisfaction of remains. So uh, persecutors are not stupid. So if you react to them by saying, by, you know, basically inviting them to bring you into a specific situation you've already imagined, or in our case, seen in a movie, then they will be smart enough not to do that. So I think they're smart enough generally in the United States. There were very few occasions, at least in the U.S., where churches were targeted as such in doctrinally specific ways. The one exception I can think of, I think this was Maine, which at this point is probably, as far as people that go to church, is majority Roman Catholic. So that they said, you may not distribute the blood of Christ, but you may distribute the body of Christ, which of course Roman Catholics are fine with. <laughs> right? So the regulation was attuned to the political population 
subject to that regulation. But they didn't say, for example, we find the fact that you would be face to face with anyone, even with, you know, latex gloves on, like in your car window, we find that bad enough, but here's your regulation, right? So regulators, because I think from a bureaucratic standpoint, you have to understand this is just a problem. Pliny's, you know, predicament is not that he woke up one day and said, I just hate Christians. I just, I hate them so much and I want to make their lives miserable. They are a cause of some kind of unrest in the populace and it's a problem, therefore, that he has to solve. You have evidence, maybe you want to get into this in the second period, right? I'm wondering, do you have evidence of specific steps that were taken, I mean, specifically against the slander, how, how the church responded specifically to the slander? Yeah, the idea of, yeah, I mean, response to the slander is very difficult because they don't have something that is such an enormous factor in our lives, which is a, which is a media of any kind. So the, the forum in which to respond to slander would really be judicial. And so the way that they do that is that when they are on trial, they will respond to some of these slanders. But otherwise, there is no particular public forum in which to address slander. Yeah. Uh, anything else right now? Questions or... We're about midway, so this is a good good point to relax. So it seems like, like so Jesus was scourged by Pilate, and yeah. it sounds from what, you know, from, from reading Pliny, it, it sounds like this is just sort of procedure for the Romans yeah. to kind of discourage those who are accused. Is there some sort of legal due process that went along with whether to scourge someone or whether not to? Yeah, it, yeah, it has largely to do with their social status. So, um, and we'll talk about, we'll talk, um, specifically about the death of Cyprian in the second hour. Cyprian is unusual in being um, both a citizen, but also ethnically Roman. And he is treated with much greater respect than most Christians who are not... I mean, the percentage of actual Romans in the Roman Empire by the second century is fairly low, uh, even in the Italian peninsula. So... Um, most Christians are not treated. I mean, torturing someone is something you do to somebody of very low social status. Yeah. So procedures would vary according to the person. Um, and then those procedures may or may not be standard. So for example, in the case of the torture, Trajan's response is, these are not the sorts of things that we strive to do in this enlightened age. And the reason that he says that is that the empire really is enormous by Trajan's time. Um, I that might be its greatest extent. And things are going remarkably well from a political point of view. And those are times in which human beings often will sort of relax on practices that in harder times are much more common. And torture is one of them. So he says, don't go out of your way to do this. <laughs> um, and it was actually illegal uh, for, a non or for a Roman citizen to be tortured. Yeah. Right, right. Couldn't do it. Yeah, but it, it also, it does tell you something about the nature of the Christians, that they were not largely, let's say, highfalutin um, early on. Go ahead. So just to sort of follow up, yeah. so the purpose of scourging, it seems like with Jesus, uh, he was, Pilate scourged him to sort of appease. Would there be, you know, we waterboard people to get information, right? Yeah. So like there's, is there, 
are the what are the reasons besides like is it just basically to appease the accusers and or to get more information or were there other reasons for it well i think it, it is directly in order to attain information but the point the point of that is not uh is not in its way sincere it's to look at it's to look at crime accusation and punishment as just a process that needs to be gotten through with so if I can secure a confession from scourging, then I don't have to go to the length of interrogating him further and then killing him. Right. So if you know, um, you know, J Japan's judicial system. I mean, they have like ninety-eight percent conviction rate because they have a much lower uh, social estimation of not just I'm I'm innocent until proven guilty, but if I am accused of doing something shameful, I will actually confess rather than go to trial. And have to have my innocence proven publicly with perhaps lots of awkward, embarrassing things revealed. So, so the 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 force of shame works there in a way. And I think if you look at if you don't think of torture as something historically unique, but actually far like slavery, kind of normal historically, then you know, well, what, why would people do that? Since it's unpleasant and it takes time. Well, the reason you would do it is because it can solve a problem for you more quickly by securing self-accusation or maybe the person's death, I don't know, whoops, right? Um, rather than have to go through with entire processes which take up time and resources because one of the things to, and this, this is why not so much following the news, but I like to read things about uh, kind of inner workings of governments and stuff like that. Or you know, if, if I lived in Illinois, I would wanna know what was going on inside the Democratic Party. And the reason would be, I want to understand from their perspective how they're looking at this. Because from the perspective of a Roman, if you're, I mean, let's say you're Pilate, for example, that's a story we're almost familiar with. You're far from home. You don't know any of these people. You don't understand why they care about the things that they care about. And they are trying to kill each other. So you have a problem on your hands that you need to solve in order not to get booted out of your job, as he will a couple years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Because of his ineptitude in dealing with the Jews, who are very difficult to deal with as a people group. So what do I do? Well, one of the things that I do is I try to get the process over with as soon as possible. And that's exactly what Pliny is trying to do. I mean, he's just trying to figure out what's going on. He has learned that they worship uh, when the sun is rising and that they sing hymns to Christ as a god. But other than that, he doesn't know a whole lot, and it really doesn't matter what they do or why they think they do it. It doesn't matter to him. It's just, it's a political problem that needs to be solved. And I don't think that that's cynical. I think it's to take at face value that persecutors don't have theological interests, strictly speaking, and they don't need to. Cyrus doesn't know the Lord. Nonetheless, the Lord is using him. The guy doesn't have to be theologically self-aware, either as a pagan or otherwise. Yeah. So uh, a few more things in the time that we have about, maybe about 20 minutes. So let's say a little bit more. Um, especially from throughout the history of um, how the Romans persecuted. Um, I would distinguish between what we've largely been talking about, which would be formal persecution, that is l using legal forms, and what, this is just something I made up, so that's all that it's worth, informal persecution. So not necessarily illegal, but extra legal. Okay. Formal persecution will always maintain some pretense of legal due process. Okay, so 
they went through the right authorities or the right forms were followed. Okay, so this varies as to, like we said, social status in the case of torture. But this also uh, means that uh, people are actually generally brought in for interrogation, um, sometimes in groups, sometimes alone, uh, often over a period of time, and, and given a chance with various kinds of admonitions to renounce the thing that could cause their death. Okay. And there will be appeals, for instance, in the case of uh, Perpetua, um, her family, including her newborn child and husband, who are seemingly not Christians, it doesn't, there's no indication that they are from that account from North Africa, are brought in basically to get her to renounce the group of Christians with whom she's been incarcerated for the sake of the group of the family who remain outside the jail. So your family gets to live their lives. Are you actually going to pick this group that has gotten you into jail over your family? Okay. So there are various legal means, so jail visits. Um, but then within interrogation, there's, uh, there is sometimes a sense of great humanity and confusion that you can hear in the voice of the persecutor. Why are you doing this? So, and that can apply to all different kinds of life. So for Perpetua or Felicity is actually uh, pregnant when she goes into jail. She gives birth in jail. The child is then taken out of the jail. In the case of mothers, you are abandoning your children. Why would you do that? In the case of Polycarp, it's please have some respect for your age. Is this the kind of thing that you want to be going through at your age? Okay. So there will be various humane appeals, and those are all understandable. And from the perspective of someone who doesn't grasp any of this theologically or anything, you can see why that would be. Um, some of the interrogators are very harsh. Some, being different kinds of human beings, are not harsh. They're, they're genuinely and sincerely confused. I don't know why you're doing this. Those are usually things like proconsuls. That is the highest and often actually Roman sent out there to govern official. In addition to that, there's a whole constellation of what we would think of as law enforcement. Somewhat similar to the overlapping jurisdictions that we have with federal agencies and state agencies and local agencies and county agencies. They have a lot of that too, that especially in the East where the civic structure uh, is underneath Roman government and predates Roman government. So it's just more complex. Okay. And those agencies have their own interests, but they are the people, for instance, who will often physically arrest you. The proconsul is not going to himself detain you. You will be detained by someone. And there are various, you know, words for these things in Greek and Latin. Some underling who is a kind of law enforcement official will detain you. And his interest is often simply the fact that you have been targeted. He's not interested in what you're saying. Okay. Sometimes those guys were converted. Sometimes, but usually, yeah, <laughs> I just want to go on historic percentages here. So it's like, I mean, sometimes the Cleveland Browns were champions of the national <laughs> national football league, but most of the time, never, not even close, not even once, right? So, so. You beat Cincinnati this year. Okay, there you go. So, I didn't know that. So, so um, 
you, 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 do have, you do have parallels to law enforcement officials, even though you don't have, for instance, uniforms. Exactly. And that's formal persecution and a pretense of legal process will always be followed. Okay. Um, now, that is, that is more heavily weighted, for instance, in the book that I recommended because those largely preserve records of judicial proceeding. There are lots of other stories of martyrs that, that preserve often much more miraculous accounts. I would say that miracles increase the farther away it gets from a specific historic deposit. Okay. And I'm not entirely dubious of all of that. I'm just I'm obser observing. That's easily observable. And then, therefore, also the rec records of miraculous conversions and changes or wonders that hide the would-be martyr from uh, death just at that moment, those also increase. W what is in the book that I recommended to you are largely church documents that generally originate as judicial proceedings and then come to be surrounded by kind of an, uh, a, an introduction and an epilogue that sound liturgical. So what you get is a historic deposit, not even necessarily produced by the Christians, that morphs into a liturgical custom that involves the life of the martyr. Okay. Obviously read on his day because the, there will often be reckonings of why it's this day and not some other day in this specific year inside the document itself. And all of that is a result of the fact that the Romans do follow legal process and do keep very good records. Okay. Informal persecution is as various as it sounds. And um, I, it's really hard to speak holistically about it because it varies widely by the group. For example, uh, Eusebius tells us that the second Jewish war, the one that ends in 135, is absolutely disastrous for the Jewish Christian church in Judea, right? Uh, Syria, Palestina is the province. We don't have a lot of records of that. We have almost no records of them, honestly, outside the Bible and Eusebius, really Acts and Eusebius, because of the decimation that they suffered by being, as it were, insufficiently politically committed to their nation's political struggle. Okay, because nationally, ethnically, they are Jews and they're not, they don't have to renounce that as Christians. So they are kind of insufficiently politically committed to the Bar Kokhba War that begins in 132 and then ends in defeat in 135. But they are also, conversely, <laughs> insufficiently not committed to the other Jews by virtue of being Jews for the Romans' taste. So they, they lose both ways. And the church is decimated, and this is observable in the record, and this is what Eusebius points out, is that you have Jewish names and even, even relatives of the Lord are very prominent in that church uh, until that war, after which not only are they evicted from Jerusalem proper, Jerusalem is re renamed, but in addition to that, the bishops of Jerusalem begin to have Greek names. They begin, obviously, that is, to be non-Jewish. Okay. So when that occurs, we don't have a lot of, we don't have a record of that. And it's also persecution that happens during wartime. And it, just a basic historical fact about wartime is that record keeping suffers enormously. Armies don't necessarily need to keep records of what they're planning to do or what they do do. And the people that suffer from their depredations obviously are generally not going to have records of similar things. So we're dependent on Josephus and Eusebius, but Josephus is not interested in the Christian church in Judea, so therefore we're really dependent on Eusebius. So 
that the nature of informal persecution, therefore, even when it results in someone's death, let alone when it involves we're spoken evil of, no one likes us, you know, people leave the church because it's so disadvantageous to be a Christian. Those are all things that we ourselves actually experience but do not keep records of. Right? So if you're listing like this person was sufficiently, his, the church was slandered sufficiently during his education, therefore he left the church on this date and I sent, you know, I, he was given a letter of release or something on that date. We don't keep those records and we know that that's happening to us. So think about how hard it would be to have a record of informal persecution. So that's why it's a little difficult to talk about historically. Uh, the last thing that I would like to um, just kind of highlight in about eight minutes here is the nature of a distinction between church and state. Okay. Remember that when, for instance, Paul is telling women to cover their heads during prayer and men to keep their heads uncovered, the Corinthians are doing the opposite, but what the Corinthians are doing is socially normal. Because if I look at certain uh, friezes of the Roman emperor, I will find him with his head covered for prayer because he is the chief high priest, the Pontifex Maximus of the entire empire, right? Augustus had gathered that ancient Roman office into the growing office of emperor. Church and state are not, or let's say religion and state to be a little more historically neutral. Religion and state are not normally separate in human societies. So if torture is historically very normal and slavery is historically very normal, the separation of church and state, or even let's just say their distinction, is not, is not historically normal. Normally, they are in some measure, to a greater or lesser degree, the same thing, right? So the vision that Muslims have of God's kingdom is historically more normal and I think comprehensible to most human societies than the one that all Christians have, whereby historically in Christianity, the one who had the government of the church was explicitly not a governor in any other sense, right? So even where the church, even prior to its legalization, when we begin to take on uh, terms with their specific Roman political meanings, like a bishop has a diocese, so he's an overseer of a diocese, which is a, it's a Roman political term, similar to saying president, like we do in the Missouri, I mean, people don't like that, but it is historically normal to do that, to take on your society's secular political terms for the people who have government in the church. Nonetheless, even where they use those government terms, that man does not participate in those secular political processes in the way that a normal citizen might. So for example, um, Gregory the Great writes the book of pastoral rule and the pastor is pictured throughout that book as a rector, a governor, okay? But he's not a governor of a distinct you know, territory because the church recognizes that the government of souls is not the same thing as the government of bodies. That basic distinction or the distinction in ancient Israel between a prophet and a king, and a prophet is allowed to critique a king because the king is not supreme, God's law is supreme, that distinction is not, is not actually recognized by most human societies. So when 
The Christians insist that, for instance, they do pray for the emperor. They just can't sacrifice to him because their religion and their government are not the same thing. Therefore, what the government says is not the same thing and does not have the same weight for them as what their religion says. They are generally misunderstood. The reason that I say that is because even where lexically we still have religious liberty, freedom of religion, whatever that means, exercise, worship, whatever people think it means, you have to understand that on the basis of historical weight, it's much more likely that someone would expect you to do precisely what the government wants you to do than that they would allow you to have your religion separately from what the government wants you to do. We really should not be surprised when people are dismayed where and when we are forced to disagree with the government because the idea that the person who could kill your body also gets to command your soul is historically and certainly from the perspective of the persecutors of the earliest churches, that is just normal and obvious. If they can kill your body, then they should also be governing your soul. I think that that seems kind of normal to them. That's part of the confusion of the interrogators. Why would you do something that everyone else, why would you refuse to do what is obvious and normal? Everyone else does this. Why not you? And the idea that is common because America is, has never been formally, but has very, infor- very much informally and very uh, heavily throughout its history been Christian, the, the idea that you and I could have vastly differing theological convictions that would cause us to react to a government edict in differing ways and that that could be okay because there are deeper and more important things that need to be preserved other than sheer compliance. That idea, which we might think of as normal or obvious or laughable that anyone would think otherwise, that idea historically is pretty weird. I support it, but it's very historically weird. And the Christians are consistently misunderstood because they simply cannot, and especially as they become a larger group, they simply cannot comply in the way that even when they insist, we pray for the emperor, we pray for his health, they're even willing to go along with sort of Roman formal honorifics like you know, desiring that he live forever. And you hear that in the Bible too. Oh, king, live forever. I mean, a, a Christian cannot sincerely utterly, literally mean that. He knows that's not true, but he's willing to go along with the social honorific. Nonetheless, the distinction between what we would, you know, let's call two governments or two kingdoms, whatever you want to do, whatever. Let's not talk about Luther's terminology today. It doesn't matter that much, right? There's just a distinction. One governs the soul and the conscience. The other governs the body. Okay. That distinction is not historically all that normal and is a cause of enormous misunderstanding by the persecutors of the church, what is your problem? Why can't you go along with this? Okay. And that will, that will increasingly be a problem the better that the Christian's position on things is known. Because early on in the history of the empire, the distinction between Jews and Christians is foggy for a lot of people. And uh, their knowledge of their practices and their actual doctrines is also extremely foggy, which is why Pliny writes a letter. Right. We have a little bit of time before we take a break for lunch. Um, questions and thoughts now. Jason, go ahead. You know, when you say illegal, 
Yeah. Do you mean simply not recognized by the state or spoken against? When I say distinction well, making sense. Um, you mean the Christians being illegal? Well, right. Okay. Their religion is illegal. Their religion is illegal. Um, lack of recognition by the state is the same thing as being illegal. Because uh, other practices are either polytheistic and can therefore somehow incorporate emperor worship, or they're monotheistic, such as maybe the cult of Mithras, but definitely the Jews, and that can be accommodated. Okay, the Christians have neither ethnicity nor antiquity to argue in favor of their their religion. So that's why it's illegal. The, what? The thing that occurs, the reason that the opposition heightens is simply because the more of them there are, the more notice is taken of them. So otherwise, they can fly under the radar, which is why it's not like every day for 300 years Christians were being slaughtered everywhere. There were places where we don't have necessarily records of martyrdom. But even where we do, I mean, like the, um, the Orthodox Cathedral in Thessalonica is not dedicated to Paul. Even though, I mean, I, I feel that's wildly unjust. Um, uh, he's like, I have like a personal, I have an irrational personal attachment to Paul at this point. Um, uh, as like a person. Um, it's dedicated to St. Demetrius because Demetrius was a martyr. And Paul was not martyred in, in Thessalonica. So when you have a martyr, that is the most salient fact about your church. Because typically illegal, we think prohibition against. Yes. And it's not necessarily no. that, it's just not recognized. Lack of recognition. Because no lack of recognition matter. it doesn't matter most days of the week, but when you need some kind of recognition and you don't have it, then it, I mean, it's like, I don't know what forms I'm missing until they're upset that I'm missing those forms. That's basically the problem. Yeah. Paul, go ahead. In light of what you were saying about the authorities oftentimes not really caring or being interested or knowing anything about yeah. the actual doctrine, right. of, sure. um, makes me think about religious exemptions to mandates. I've been kind of skeptical about like what's the point of trying to explain in detail our biblical position about yeah, something, matter. and I. I just don't, it kind of makes me wonder, what's the point? I mean, yeah. other than, because they're not going to care. They don't care. They want the form filed. And they want signatures on it from some kind of, you know, authorized religious representative. So, I mean, I've seen guys say, well, I'm not going to write exemptions like that because, you know, the Synod has no position on vaccines. Well, Let's wait for forever until the Senate has, <laughs> has detailed positions on urgent matters. That's just not what it does or what it's for and not what it's designed to do. But the U.S. government or their employer does not care about the polity of the Missouri Senate. Just say this person has sincere conscientious objections on the basis of our church. Sign it and hand it to them. Simple. You know? Yeah, because the government takes no cognizance of our doctrine and that's actually a good thing. Let's exploit that as long as we can. Right, yeah. Uh, Andrew, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so you were, you were, you were mentioning how, you know, the, the Christians didn't have any, like, ethnic roots um, like the Jews did. Um, yeah, they had no specific. Specific, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and it's interesting today how it is kind of 
uh, informally uh, rooted in like whiteness, right? For obviously, we know that's not true, yeah. but it that's how people see like a white male Christian or whatever. Christian yeah. yeah, and um, and so what is a, what is a, a is there is there an extent where we obviously have to be cautious against you know the the craziness that is obvious there, but then. Is there a sense in which we can actually kind of learn from like the blacks, for example, who say we were slaves, right? And that we recognize our heritage and history and can actually maybe even just own that to an extent. Not not like the, the whiteness so much, but just saying this is who we are and, you know, we do have a history. And if you could sp- speak on that. Yeah. So, I mean, the... The heterosexual white Christian male kind of contains within himself every intersectional problem, <laughs> right? So he is he is the prime target because, and this is not actually un this is not unlike the Roman Empire. The Christians are not, from a political perspective, doctrinally targeted. They're targeted for lack of compliance. Okay. In the same way, the white Christian, the heterosexual white Christian male is not targeted because he's Christian, but his Christianity is understood as a kind of legacy of whiteness, right? Which is why Christianity, as it's often taught, especially in public universities, can be defamed, but other religions are, are spoken, of, spoken of very respectfully. Okay. That's not because Christianity necessarily is itself despised. It's because it is despised as the religion of the presumptive political enemy. Okay, which is the heterosexual white Christian male. He doesn't, nobody's checking his church attendance record. They're just checking. Is he of European descent? Because Europe is understood as Christendom. Right. Um, So in that case, I think the defense is simply to say that being white is not evil rather than trying to say, well, this doesn't have a lot to do with our whiteness or something. I mean, um, you know, because because that's not even going to be plausible or listened to. For saying I'm colorblind and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, saying you're colorblind because that's that's kind of silly. I mean, it would be silly for me, you know, grafted, on, you know, a wild olive tree grafted onto the Missouri Synod, to pretend that the Missouri Synod had all the same personal history that I have in my genealogy. They don't, and that's fine. It doesn't. That doesn't matter. But pretending like they're the same thing would be silly, and that's not even exactly an, an ethnic. It's certainly not a racial difference between me and the historic population of the Missouri Synod. So um, in that case, you know, you're, all you want to say is being white is not a sin. Being male is not a sin. Obviously, being Christian is not a sin. Being heterosexual is not a sin. Because that's simply being denounced as sin for political purposes. In the same sense, they're not, you know, they're not interested in the Christian's doctrine of God, even though sometimes that's part of the preaching. <laughs> you know, and I think, I mean, you know, I mean, some of us are like this. We all know people, you know, it's just like any opportunity they have to talk, they're going to go on at length. So some of the martyrs talk a lot, right? Um, the proconsul is not interested, but he is interested in, are you identified with this group who is identified as a problem? That's the issue. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Back here. Maybe you'll talk about this in the reaction part two, but... You mentioned that uh, persecution results when the community, in a community that knows what the difference is. Okay, so could ecumenism then be an attempt to avoid persecution or to uh, reverse persecution of Christianity? 
Yeah, this is, um, this is interesting. I, I'm glad you brought this up because there are instances, especially in Asia Minor. So Asia Minor is extremely wealthy, um, extremely populous, and therefore has the most different Christian, what we would probably call denominations. So you might be familiar with the Montanists originating there, but lots of other things originate there too. The Montanists are usually called by the Orthodox or Catholic Christians, the Phrygians, to kind of... And that, that's actually, <laughs> that's kind of an ethnic slur because Phrygians are proverbially stupid. So to identify an entire church body with a proverbially stupid ethnicity is, but that's what the, orth, the mainstream, our church, Catholic church, Chalcedonian Christians do. So there's a martyrdom account where you find out that in jail, there are, there's a priest, there's a couple males, a couple females, and incarcerated with them, marked off by the Christians, but not by the government, a Phrygian. So there is a kind of ad hoc, let's say, ecumenism to persecution because the government doesn't care that you and the Baptists have all these vast disagreements. You're just part of this overarching group called Christians, right? Um, and so I think, you know, whatever motivations exist for the ecumenical movement or movements for Lutheran unity or something historically, um, in a case of actual persecution, the, the, the attempt to distinguish yourself severely from other kinds of Christians is very difficult to achieve and maybe impossible, which, and you can see that in modernity too. I mean, um, you know, the, um, the Ethiopian Lutherans, I mean, they're, they're kind of Lutheran, Makani Jesus. Um, a lot of other things could be said about them, one, one thing to know about them is that their recent within living memory experience of Christianity is persecution by the communist regime, the Derg, and then everyone is just either Christian or not. And so that just gives them a different perspective on other Christians from we're used to just denouncing Baptists and the Baptists can denounce us and life goes on, right? So it's really kind of difficult to tell the difference between the Christians when persecution occurs, and the regime doesn't take notice of that. They're really interested in the question of compliance. So when and where Christians denounce or betray other Christians, then those people are protected. But the fact that you're kind of like an off-brand Christian, but you are not denouncing the other Christians, you're not protected. You will also be persecuted. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Danko? I was just going to ask about like, what about historically when there are Christian sects uh, that play ball with the government and they do whatever the government demands for compliance? Yeah. Um, are they also grouped in the same umbrella way with the Christians? No. No. No, they're not. But that is what is fruitful of schism within the church because they didn't. And, it, and it's called schism, and that's why I think usually the term is used schism for the Donatists, because that is not that is not in strict. Let's say in the way that I said it earlier, that's not a lexical debate. That's a debate about action or practice. Now I think that bears a lot on doctrine, as I said from the Sermon on the Mount, but it's not specifically a doctrinal debate about say the natures, the two natures in Christ, or the divinity of the of the Spirit, or something. Yeah. So compliance doesn't, it, it resolves the tension between governmental demand and, and church non-compliance. That tension is gone. 
now the tension kind of like travels like an earthquake tremor into the church and then it ruptures the church. Yeah, go ahead. You made a comment about the Rescue attack on the Gospels for persecution. Can you expand on that? Because some people might not think it's an attack. They might think it's a different interpretation. Um, I, 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 did not, I did not mean that. That's not my own opinion. I'm saying that historically, people have said that if the gospel, not the gospels, but the gospel, Jesus Christ died for sinners and rose again from the dead after three days. The gospel. If that, if that specific message is not being suppressed, and it's important to say it wasn't in the Roman Empire. They don't care. But people will say today, if that message is not being suppressed or that message can get out, then persecution is not occurring. And I think that's an erroneous judgment of what persecution is.